Good morning. Uh, Dr. Rothstein is not here this morning, and uh, I am Lou Guill, the Chief of Allergy and Pediatric Pulmonology. I've had the pleasure of introducing our speaker this morning. Um, we're very glad to have Dr. Mariana Castells from Brigham and Women's in Boston. Uh, she's a native of Spain, did her early training in Spain through an allergy fellowship and a PhD in immunology, uh, and then came to the U.S. and did a second allergy fellowship at the Medical College of Virginia and a research uh, allergy and immunology fellowship at the Brigham, where she has been, she spent her entire uh, professional career in the Harvard system and at Brigham and Women's. I would not begin to try to go through her entire CV for, with, for you. Um, but the things that are important is that she is a consummate teacher uh, of students, of learners at all levels, beginning with, with phase, well, early, early medical students all the way through uh, fellowship uh, trainees. And she prides herself on the ed education that she provides. One of the unique things she does is a uh, immersion in allergy and immunology for new fellows that's open to residents and fellows across all the Harvard system. Uh, every summer. Uh, this is apparently a uh, well sought after course. Uh, she is recognized nationally and internationally for her work in uh, adverse reactions to drugs and drug desensitization and for her work in mast cell physiology and the management of mast cell related syndromes. Uh, so we're pleased to have her this morning. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I thought that only in Boston it rained in the morning, but I guess <laughs> it's across across here too. Um, so I will be uh, delighted to um, talk to you a little bit about one of my passions. Uh, I will talk to you about this, what we call the new diseases of the 21st century, mass cell activation syndromes. When I uh, came to um, Boston and started my fellowship with uh, uh, my research fellowship with uh, Dr. Austin, Frank Austin. Let me see if I can put this here. Can you hear me? Yes. So when I started my fellowship with uh, Dr. Frank Austin, uh, he, a few weeks uh, into my fellowship, he handed me a package of uh, medical charts, like paper charts at that time. It was 1991. And he said, you know those patients here, I've been caring for them. They have mastocytosis. And my PhD was in mast cell biology. So I said, you should be interested in those patients. And I said, OK, I'll look at them. And you know, those patients kind of, from the day they have symptoms to the day we made the diagnosis, about nine years. We just published a paper about that. Your job is to make that time shorter. I say, okay, I take every seriously uh, any any job that's assigned to me, and unfortunately, I have to say that uh, we published in the New England Journal a case report that I will show you here of a marathon runner who went for nine years unrecognized and had severe severe symptoms of anaphylaxis, and his underlying disease was systemic mastocytosis. So I am in a mission here to spread the word, how can you recognize the symptoms, how can you make the diagnosis, and how can you stop those patients from actually suffering from <coughs> multiple episodes. And I have to say that those patients uh, are unrecognized and also some of the mortalities are known to us. Some of those patients may have died of hypotensive events in the emergency room, and the only check mark would be hypotension. Whether mastocytosis is discovered or not, we, we don't really know. So it's very unreported. It is a fascinating disease for me. 
Uh, here are your learning objectives. Uh, describe the recognized symptoms to understand the diagnostic tools and the prognostic factors, as well as the management. I'll help you with the management. Triptase, triptase. So uh, triptase is a muscle protease, uh, and I did my PhD on, uh, on the uh, evaluation of triptase in nasal secretions in uh, bronchoalveolar fluid. And uh, we have several patients who come to the clinic, and then when they have the anaphylactic events, they will go to other hospitals, emergency rooms. So we call immediately and say, why don't you get a triptase level so we can know the extent of the mast cell activation. And the first thing they ask us is, can you spell that? So T-R-Y-P-T-A-S-E, okay. So that, that so far so good. And then we get the patient back two weeks later in clinic and uh, my fellow says, Dr. says, why do you want the trypsin on this level? So tryptase becomes trypsin because nobody really knows what tryptase is all about. Um, the uh, important thing also uh, nowadays is that we have other mast cell mediators, methylhistamine, prostaglandins, leukotrans that I'll show you that will also help us in defining those mast cell activation disorders. And then the new kid on the block is the mutation. So there's a specific mutation that is seen in patients with coronal mast cell disorders. And that mutation here. Okay. So the mutation here, uh, not sure the point was working, uh, can be done. It's one of the WHO uh, and can be done in peripheral blood. So um, the classification of the mast cell activation disorders is here, and uh, you don't need to look too much at that. We are going to go through this in a second. Um, if the pointer uh, helps me, uh, they are primary, which will be the clonal mast cell disorders. They would be secondary, associated to other diseases, and then there would be idiopathic. Uh, mast cell disorders that I will talk to you in a second. Just so to introduce the topic, we have uh, a, a, two great phenotypes, two, two big uh, major categories of mast cells. One is called the TC mast cell and one is called the T mast cell. The mast cell in the left, yeah, which no, is so like I the blue one here. I don't know if the pointer is working. The uh, mast cell in the left is the mast cell that we call it reactive. It comes in the nose when we itch uh, and sneeze uh, in the spring. And the mast cell in the, uh, in the right side here, the uh, orange one, is the mast cell that is in the connective tissue. Right. Uh, and it's right. full with proteases, uh, tryptase, chymase, carboxypeptidase. When patients actually have anaphylactic events, release from this mass yeah. here, which has tremendous oh. amount of mediators, and is the one that is present in the coronal muscle disorders. To tell you the uh, picograms of histamine that is released and the picograms of tryptase that is released is about three to five times more in this uh, mass cell, the resonant mass cell. And mast cells, uh, and that's an important point, do not need to be activated through IgE mechanisms. So we have this classical way of activating mast cells, IgE, but then there are many other ways to activate it. Complement, so what we call anaphylatoxins, C5A, C3A, uh, any other uh, um, direct, really, uh, direct uh, activation of mast cells can induce mast cell activation without uh, going uh, just through the IgE receptor. And when mast cells release, uh, in, in addition to histamine, to proteases, uh, is uh, lipid mediators that are vasodilator, that are bronchoconstricting, uh, cytokines, and uh, other mediators. And uh, lately, we have known that also they are a source of platelet activating factor, which is also uh, um, a huge factor of hypotension.
So here is our guy. He is a 32-year-old guy. He comes to Boston to run the marathon, and uh, he takes two Advils at the end of the marathon, and uh, he kind of collapses outside of Mass General Hospital, the hospital across from the Brigham uh, to the other side of the river, and uh, he really doesn't make it that well. Uh, hypotension, dehydration, intubation, and uh, trip takes 2,000. And uh, they told me on the phone, Dr. Castells, we have a trip test of 2,000. What do you want to do with this patient? My, I, I had two answers for that. First of all is undress the patient. And then he has a and the phone got you know, blank. Okay. Uh, because the, they were not telling me that the patient has any signs or symptoms of, uh, of, uh, of mastocytosis. And the second thing is with that triptase and with the episode, we're going to marrow this patient. So, you know, last time when I... Then fluids, steroids, sometimes epinephrine if the blood pressure was really low. Uh, he said that alcohol made him really sick, sometimes stress, emotions, infections, some foods, and, and now the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. Uh, he had chronic fatigue, he was very depressed, and uh, he didn't really know what to do with his life because those episodes were unpredictable. He told me when he came to the clinic that I asked him to undress and he looked at me like, you're an allergist, why do you want to look at anything else than you know, my face? And I said, well, because you might have a clue inside of uh, any uh, of your skin. He had never been undressed in the emergency rooms. Never. He had really nice urticaria pigmentosa ulations in his chest and in his uh, the upper thighs. And uh, those were really um, positive for diarrhea sign that you will see in a second. So let's turn to another case, a really dramatic case. This is a patient with 30 years old woman with near fatal anaphylaxis during a, a C-section. Uh, she has an epidural anesthesia. They give her the typical uh, medications and then uh, she, uh, when they core clumping, they give two grams of cefazolin and she becomes immediately, immediately profoundly hypotensive, uh, tachycardia, unresponsive, they call it code. Uh, she's very flush and her lips are swelling. And uh, they gave uh, all the resuscitation, she makes it, and uh, her triptase is 39. Um, uh, two months after the delivery, she, um, again, shown to have those, and uh, this was even more interesting than the first case, because the first day they didn't look at the skin, she had shown those lesions to her PCP, and you say, those are aging spots. But she said, well, well I'm 35. You know, that, they occur at any age. So aging spots, uh, there were early carapigmentosa lesions, and uh, she was having episodes of, uh, of passing out and syncope for many years without, uh, with uh, no uh, evident diagnosis. Uh, she also had had three vertebral fractures at age 24, which was really a red flag for us. And uh, she had a, a normal first pregnancy. Her skin test was positive for cefazolin, so we did an allergy evaluation, and it was negative for the other things. So she did have uh, 
a reason for why she anaphylaxed at the time, her baseline fructase was 19. And uh, although it was like one point close to the WHO criteria for uh, mastocytosis, which is 20, we did a uh, bone marrow biopsy and her uh, seeking mutation was positive. So this is the bone marrow of patients with mastocytosis. There is aggregates, and aggregates is a word. There's like 15 more, 15 mast cells together or more. They are CD25 positive, which is like the key, well, the CD25 positive. The, CD25 is an activation marker for T cells, which should not be expressed on mast cells, and it's expressed on the mast cells of patients with mastocytosis. And there was the positive, the seeking mutation that was positive. And so to recap where we are, we are here uh, that the patients have symptoms, including anaphylaxis, that are compatible with mast cell activation, that we are found to have a clonal expansion because there is that seeking mutation, and we call it primary mast cell activation disorders. And those patients uh, are going to have either systemic mastocytosis or uh, monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. And um, mastocytosis is defined as a disease where it's, it's limited to the skin, where we have cutaneous mastocytosis, or systemic mastocytosis in which the accumulation occurs in the other organs. And the criteria for systemic is there will be that major criteria, the bone marrow criteria, so the, the uh, tissue uh, accumulation of the mast cells, and three minor criteria. Let's dwell for a few seconds on uh, cutaneous mastocytosis limited to the skin. The more common form is urticaria pigmentosa, and those would be brown town lesions that you have actually to actively look for them to find them. So again, undressing a patient is critical to find those. The typical location I'll show you is in the upper legs and, and sometimes in a little bit the, the upper uh, abdomen, but it very, very frequently missed. Solitary mastocytomas are a, a big thing uh, that I will show you in the skin, and then diffuse cutaneous mastocytomas Mastocytosis is a disease mostly of children, but we have few adults. Uh, and then telangiectasia macularis eruptiva pertans is mostly in adults. And we see that uh, the, there is an accumulation of mast cells under the skin, but mostly the darrier sign. What is the darrier sign? The darrier sign is we scratch that with a finger, or we ask the patient because the patient tells you, you know, those little things that I have, they flare up when um, I'm upset, when I go outside and it's uh, hot, or when it's cold or when I drink alcohol, or, or uh, when I have friction or exercise, and that is a wheel and flare reaction upon stroking. So the mast cells that you see here, this is a staining for CD117, which is CKID. There's accumulation under the skin. Those are um, skin biopsies, and then the tryptase uh, is pretty prominent. Uh, here is the urticaria pigmentosa lesions. Those are typical lesions, and uh, they, you see them that if the patient wears pants uh, or even shorts, it's very hard because the lower part, there will be few of them. The ones that are brown are old lesions. So if you want to do an area sign in those lesions, you might not come up with a positive response. But when there are new lesions that are more red than brown, then the darrier sign is very positive. A mastocytoma in dark skin is sometimes very difficult to find. So you ask the patient, do you have anything in your skin that you want me to look at? And they may say, well, that, and it becomes a little bit red and inflamed. Sometimes it blisters. So some of the lesions also are blistering. And this is one of the dramatic cases that we had with Children's Hospital. This kid was a 
start to have a, um, a diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, which in itself is not uh, a disease, uh, a dangerous disease. And his skin had a little bit of a pot orange feeling, but uh, they um, gave this kid all the uh, vaccinations at once. And within 24 hours of receiving four vaccines, uh, he blistered all his skin and was admitted to the intensive care unit for a week. So you can see that those uh, mast cell uh, lesions can be pretty nasty. Uh, and this is uh, the story of the five-month-old baby. And his triptase uh, was 64, um, uh, which is the normal triptase is around 11 to 15 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, so he had symptoms of flushing, and uh, he received at four months all the vaccinations listed here. And within a few hours, this was what happened. We, we treat him with sodium chromaline cream and uh, prednisone, and he did really well. So he kind of survived the episode. This is a soccer player, eight-year-old soccer player. Uh, ball hits his head, falls, uh, has a syncopal episode, and then goes to the hospital. This is a hole in his uh, skull, and uh, they do a biopsy of that, and they call us, and they said the cells that we see here look like eosinophils, eosinophilic granuloma. We don't really know. Those were full of mast cells, and the kid had a mastocytoma that actually had uh, um, grown to his uh, skull. So this is what mast cells can actually do. For the systemic mastocytosis patients, we have very clear defined criteria. They have to have those infiltrates. But one thing that's important is a lot of patients, I was commenting yesterday um, to my colleagues that some patients come to you and say, well, I don't want to have a bone marrow biopsy. You know, I read it online that I could actually die from a bone marrow biopsy. It's painful. Uh, I can be paralyzed. Uh, there's a lot of bad things. Nowadays, with patients who have prominent gastrointestinal symptoms, we make the diagnosis of uh, systemic mastocytosis in the gastrointestinal tract. And I'll show you that the accumulation of mast cells can also be seen in the gastrointestinal tract with the same, uh, with those same uh, focal aggregates that in the bone marrow biopsy. The minor criteria for mastocytosis is that the spindle-shaped cells, the Sikkim mutation, positive at the codone 816, and the aberrant expression of CD25, and as we mentioned, the triptase level. So those are the bone marrow that I'll show you uh, before, the aggregates, and then the expression of CD25 uh, in the mast cells which express CKIT, which is CD117, uh, clear. The mutation that we have uh, uh, present in patients with mastocytosis, 98% of the patients have this mutation. So the Sikkim mutation on D816V, so the change of the aspartic acid by a valine here, you see the wild type and the mutated type is the key to the diagnosis of systemic mastocytosis and also of muscle activation syndrome, so monoclonal muscle activation syndrome. So the, the finding of that in the peripheral blood. So in the last three years, we have been able to do this test in the peripheral blood without going into the bone marrow biopsy. So if we have a patient who are suspicious about that, we can actually do this, uh, this test. And the mutations of CKID have been associated with other diseases like GIST diseases and, and some others. And particularly uh, the point that I'm making here uh, with the mutation in the enzymatic pocket activation loop is that the uh, D816V mutation prevents patients from being sensitive to imidinib. So we have had plenty of patients came to our clinic and say, well, I was diagnosed uh, 10 years ago of uh, systemic mastocytosis, my hematologist told me to take Glivec. But you know, I continue to have the same flushing, the same diarrhea, I don't go out. Um, I have had several anaphylactic events last year. So it's like they didn't take anything because the imatinib binds to that site. And if the site is mutated, the imatinib is not effective. 
So imatinib is not uh, indicated in those patients. Now, the uh, um, prognosis of the patients with systemic mastocytosis is seen in this uh, in this slide. And you, you see the blue, the Kaplan-Meier uh, here, or, uh, the uh, graph, the uh, blue line indicates that if the mutation is restricted to the mast cells, the patients have a normal lifespan. So if the mutation is just in the mast cell compartment, the patients may, may not have any problems. They can live 40 years. Those are the patients that I inherited from my mentor, Dr. Austin, and have been following. So uh, there are patients who we have followed for 40 years between him and I. Um, patients who have mutations in the other lineages, like the myeloid or lympho lineages, are more prone to have what we call mast cell um, associated hematological malignancy. So there's a secondary type of mastocytosis in which those patients over time will be able to develop a secondary hematological malignancy and their lifespan will be shortened. So it is important that we keep th those in mind. Uh, tryptase levels here can be elevated in anaphylaxis but remain elevated at baseline in patients with mastocytosis. And recently we have been able to measure methylhistamine in the urine of those patients. And methylhistamine, as you can see here, systemic mastocytosis group is elevated and in the, uh, as compared to the control group, but also prostaglandins. So prostaglandins and methylhistamine measured in 24-hour urine are tremendously helpful in our um, diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome. <coughs> Leukotrienes were also measured and are elevated, but not available uh, uh, for uh, measurement uh, nowadays. So this is another very interesting story. This is a guy, 42-year-old male with wasp, uh, who was stung by a wasp while working in the yard, and within 15 minutes, he collapses. They give him epinephrine, he fully recovers, and his striptase uh, is uh, 40 nanograms at the time, but we start put the patient on immunotherapy, we want to save the patient's life, but also two months later, the episodes, uh, his tryptase doesn't go down. The tryptase is 32, and he was 40. So what is this? So uh, we go and bone marrow the patient, and he has muscle aggregate, CD25 positive, he has a mutation. So a subset of patients with hymenoptera anaphylaxis, and we are uh, at this moment trying to define how many of those patients, but they are clearly defined by the fact of the severity of their anaphylaxis. They pass out. So you have a patient who has bee sting, have wasp, pass out in the field, uh, tryptase is mandatory, and in addition to that, uh, we have to see if the patient qualifies for um, mastocytosis. This is what happened with those patients. There is a, um, we, pro we published the cases of patients with uh, systemic mastocytosis venom immunotherapy. So it's not a contraindication. Those patients can have venom uh, immunotherapy. And the reaction that they had were, uh, those patients were tremendously severe. So the great uh, four reactions with the majority of those patients. So patients really passed out. What I want to point out to you is those patients did not have early carrier pigmentosa. So you were not able to define that the patients, by looking at them, say they passed out in the field, they had hymenoptera, venom, uh, anaphylaxis. I'm going to look at that skin, Dr. Gassel says, you know, should address the patient. But here you see that the patients uh, in the second, and I'm sorry, I cannot really point out to that. Um, the pointer is actually, not, well, should work, but I don't know. If... So. Uh, they, they didn't really, uh, a lot of them did not have early carrier pigmentosa. So the patients that you are going to be seeing that have an anaphylactic event with hymenoptera may not have early carrier pigmentosa. Their tryptase is 
might be elevated, and those patients are candidates for bone marrow biopsy to understand if they have systemic mastocytosis. And at the end, I will tell you why we really need the diagnosis of systemic mastocytosis. There are complications. Even if we, I show you a very nice picture that the lifespan is not going to be shortened, the complications are uh, severe. Those patients actually are going to be breaking bones. Osteoporosis and osteopenia is one of the major complications of that. Um, so we are here now, and so we have seen the mastocytosis patients with the, the uh, aggregates, major criteria, mutations, and that uh, we are going now to see what we call monoclonal muscle activation syndrome. This is a 44-year-old female with idiopathic anaphylaxis. She doesn't have early pigmentosa, and she had common allergies, but she develops bad, bad symptoms when we give her immunotherapy. And uh, the uh, allergy says, you know, we are just going to stop that immunotherapy. We have too many anaphylactic events. Uh, she also had events when she was not um, having immunotherapy, when she has uh, eaten at a Japanese restaurant and she goes to the emergency room. And some episodes are not uh, food related. Uh, she had multiple episodes of uh, cramping, abdominal pain, and uh, when she goes to the emergency room, she has severe hypertension. That's a really red flag. And uh, those episodes are associated sometimes with her men menstrual cycle. And she has like more than 20 trips to the uh, emergency room. She has more than 30 episodes of uh, epinephrine administration. That is a really great uh, red flag. So the tryptase is normal here, but her 24-hour urine methyl histamine is elevated, and uh, we uh, looked at her bone marrow. We said this is actually a red flag for somebody who might have systemic mastocytosis. So we read uh, her bone marrow, and in fact, her bone marrow was sent to us from another hospital. She had the bone marrow by her local uh, hematologist, and their reading of the bone marrow was normal bone marrow. So uh, in the pathology uh, uh, is not uh, the, criteria, the criteria for what we call monoclonal muscle activation syndrome uh, are not uh, something that is available to the pathology department in most places. And if they don't find a muscle aggregate, so if they don't find like 15 mast cells, they may say normal mast and normal bone marrow. But we found in that that she had few spindle mast cells and she had a mutation. So this is what we found. So the mast cells that you see here, the brown stained cells, are spindle-shaped mast cells. As I showed you at the beginning are round cells. They're round, they have a very distinctive uh, appearance, they have granules. When you find spindle-shaped mast cells, those are abnormal mast cells. So any uh, bone marrow um, that shows distorted mast cells will be something completely abnormal. And you have here that the not only the mast cells are abnormal, they stand with CD25. So those mast cells are clonal mast cells. And the patient has what we call monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. So this was initially described by uh, Dr. Aiken and his collaborators and, and myself, and uh, we had patients who came to be evaluated for idiopathic uh, anaphylaxis, and uh, three of uh, those patients had CKID mutations, and there were no aggregates, but uh, when we look at them, uh, they had the uh, mutation um, uh, that was present, and uh, 
Uh, the patients were classified as having a monoclonal because of mutation. They have a clonal expression of mast cells. So your question you could ask me is that, well, is this an early stage of uh, systemic mastocytosis? Could it be possible that those patients may just kind of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg, and then if we go a little bit further down the years, they will develop systemic mastocytosis? We have actually followed, uh, I would say probably now, uh, 30 patients with monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. They have not crossed over to become mast indolent systemic mastocytosis patients. So uh, we're still working on the uh, biology of the disease, but those patients are actually stable. And this is what makes the difference. You see in the bottom, they are aggregates. It's easy to see. You see the slide. In pathology, you see those 15, 20 mast cells, and the pathologist is very confident, tells you, yes, that is a distinctive feature. You see the upper uh, uh, pathology uh, slide, and the pathology says, no, there's nothing there. Well, there is. There is spindle mast cells, and they're staining with 2D25. It's completely abnormal, and this is a monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. Um, so we have actually reviewed the primary uh, mast cell activation syndromes uh, here, either the systemic mastocytosis or the monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. And the secondary uh, mast cell activation syndromes are associated with other diseases so that in chronic inflammatory or neoplastic disorders, we can have patients who have hives, who have flushing, who have muscle activation, and particularly patients with chronic autoimmune urticaria. We call that um, the secondary muscle activation syndromes. They have antrodema, urticaria, and we can find elevations of either of tryptase, methylhistamine, or prostaglandins. What I'm going to talk to you is a new uh, kid on the block, which is the idiopathic muscle activation syndromes. So what we call the non-clonal muscle activation syndromes was uh, defined uh, a few years ago in 2011 when we started to see patients who complain with abdominal pain, they had dermatographism, which means that they touch themselves uh, or at the stripes of their pants or their bras or any place they have like those lines, the red lines, they can write their names on their backs or in their arms. Uh, they were flushed all the time, they have headaches, uh, poor concentration memory, they had diarrhea times, uh, and then they have, some of them, uh, anaphylactic symptoms. So this was like a complex presentation that we thought could be due to muscle activation. So looking further into those patients, there was a, a actually predominance of females in that population, and the predominance of females in middle age. Uh, they also were associated with some other allergies, medication allergies and, and uh, uh, other food allergies, and they had had uh, undergone tremendous amount of uh, procedures, endoscopies, colonoscopies, uh, CT scans, and the mean years uh, of the symptoms were actually very broad, at least four years with symptoms, but some patients were having either nine years from the beginning of their symptoms. And when we look at the mediators, uh, you see here in the first column that the tryptase, uh, very few patients had elevated tryptase, but methylhistamine and prostaglandin was elevated in the majority of those patients. So the majority of those patients had a sign that the uh, mast cells were activated because we could collect in their urine histamine or prostaglandins. So what was happening in those patients is that the mast cells, which are fully granulated here uh, in the right side and who do not have a clonal appearance, they are not spindle-shaped, they don't express ED25, they're fully granulated, would degranulate suddenly for reasons that we still don't completely understand. 
we went further and we wanted to look at their intestine. We said, well, if the major symptoms are abdominal bloating, pain, diarrhea, some patients had reflux, uh, we want to look at maybe there is an increase in the mass cells in the gut. Maybe there is something to be said about it. So we looked at that and um, again, we published it a few years ago that they did not have any difference in the number of mass cells and normal people than other controls. So those patients did not have any increase in the numbers of mast cells in the gut. So this is the, uh, the, um, the gut of those patients. And uh, Dr. Hornick, uh, who is our chief pathologist at the mastocytosis center, looked at the numbers of those mast cells. And as you can see here, for example, in the duodenum, the range is very wide. So up to 50 mast cells in the duodenum would be normal. And we have a lot of patients who come to us and says, well, you know, I had an endoscopy. I have 30 mast cells per high power field. And that is a sign that I have mastocytosis. And a lot of those patients have been diagnosed with systemic mastocytosis based on the number of GI mast cells they have, when we look at that, you see that those numbers don't qualify. Those numbers are normal numbers of mast cells, and up to 30, 40, 50 mast cells per high power field would not make a diagnosis of mastocytosis. In contrast, you have here what I was telling you, uh, that we now use the criteria of the endoscopy to diagnose the patients with systemic mastocytosis. And those patients, you can see that in brown, the cells that are stained with tryptase and uh, with secid, uh, um, there is a dramatic amount of mast cells in those patients. That is a major criteria now for systemic mastocytosis. So doing an endoscopy, uh, colonoscopy, and having a biopsy is tremendously helpful for patients with we, which we think might have systemic mastocytosis. We can actually define the major criteria by you doing this, and this is actually completely new. Those patients may not need to go to bone marrow biopsies. So what is the criteria for patients uh, to have mast cell activation syndrome? And I tell you that if you are all internist or even if you are pediatricians here that you will have patients come to your um, uh, clinics saying, I have mastocytosis, I have mast cell activation syndrome, I read it in the internet. And, and then they'll try to convince you that the one who doesn't know enough is, is you. Because I had patients who have come to me with a bunch of 12 pages of the internet, they start to get Cells, I have this mast cell activation syndrome. They say, well, let's look at it, you know, and at the end of the day, maybe two months in the road, everything is negative, and I tell them, you know, you might not have this activation syndrome. You might want to look at focal cord dysfunction. You might will look at uh, IBS. You might want to look at some other things, but you don't have it. And they kind of are upset sometimes. I have to say that we, we are very patient about that, and I'll, I'll show you the algorithm that we use for uh, making the diagnosis. But the patients are very savvy now. They come and tell you what they have. So the, uh, the symptoms that uh, those patients will complain are symptoms that are compatible with muscle activation. But those symptoms are very wide. So the first criteria is episodic <coughs> symptoms that affect the skin, the gastrointestinal tract, the cardiovascular, the respiratory, um, even nasal ocular symptoms. So those are in two organs. So a patient flushing abdominal pain. Here we are. We have it. Uh, patient uh, says... Uh, I have diarrhea and uh, nasal congestion. I have it. So those are the symptoms that, that will come. And we have to be very careful about saying, well, you need two organ systems and we need to have recurrent episodes. So because you have three sneezes one day and three episodes of diarrhea in the last six months doesn't make you have mast cell activation syndrome. But that's that's your job to uh, start to unravel that. The second is that uh, um, 
the decreased frequency of those symptoms with what we call mast cell mediator control medication. So I'm going to give you the list of the medications that we use in the mastocytosis center to make those patients better. And if they actually have a consistent uh, improvement of those symptoms while we put them on this medication, then we can say, well, you have two criteria. The third criteria is the tough one. You have to catch the mediators at one point in time. So there has to be some evidence that they have either a tryptase elevation, either a methyl histamine elevation, either a prostaglandin elevation at some point in time, maybe not at baseline, but they are at their worst episodes. When they have florid diarrhea, when they're flushed, they go to the emergency room or they go to your clinics and then they start to collect the urine and they start to look for methyl histamine or prostaglandins. And the most important thing also is that, and, and the one I emphasize for all the fellows and residents is that they have to be ruled out for uh, any other cause. So somebody who's flushing and hypertensive, it's spirochromocytoma in my book, before we go into mast cell activation disorder. Somebody who has abdominal pain and, and, and flushing also might have carcinoid. And so those things that are diagnostic uh, criteria need to be actually done before we do that. Now, what are the symptoms that will make you suspicious? So they are critical symptoms. So here, this is the uh, clonal versus non-clonal muscle activation disorders, and this is from a, a series from the European colleagues and uh, Dr. Um, Escribano uh, with uh, his uh, allergy clinic and mastocytosis center uh, in, uh, in Spain, and they provided us with uh, thousands of cases. So having a patient have urticaria, antedema, and dyspnea as one of the prominent symptoms uh, is actually protective. Those patients are not going to have, likely not going to have a muscle, a clonal muscle activation disorder. But having presyncope, syncope, or hypotension is a red flag. Any patient with that is a patient who might qualify for um, um, a clonal disorder. So the way we have the, our algorithm is the patients with signs and symptoms of muscle activation of at least two organs, we rule out any diseases, as I mentioned here, and we evaluate them for a mast cell clonality. And if they have mast cell clonality, and that can be done in peripheral blood, uh, we consider that to be systemic mastocytosis or a monoclonal mast cell activation syndrome. If there is no clonality, but there is positive mediators, we go to the right side here and we say, let's try medication to block those symptoms. And if they have a good response, they have non-clonal muscle activation syndrome. They have equivocal response. We continue to treat and we consider alternative diagnosis. If they have no improvement and the trial of medication has no impact in their symptoms, we tell them to consider, to consider that another uh, diagnosis. Now, how much time do we allow for that? Uh, we allow between 6 to 12 months. So we are very lenient. We say, we are going to put you on antihistamines, we are going to put you on sodium chromaline, and you will be able to see if there's improvement. If there is no improvement, then we have to think about something else. So the treatment of the mastocytosis and muscle activation syndromes is here. We have to avoid the triggers, and I'll show you in a second. We use antihistamines, and we use first and second generation of uh, H1 and H2 blockade. We use sodium chromaline, which is a very important medication that I'll show you in a second. We have now ketodifen, which we didn't have before. Uh, FDA approved it, as, and it's a compounded uh, medication now for patients who have severe uh, mast cell 
uh, mastocytosis, uh, some uh, prednisone tapers might be indicated. Omalizumab is a medication that has been used by Melody Carter and, uh, and her colleagues at the NIH for patients with uh, systemic um, symptoms of anaphylaxis and uh, the very positive impact. And uh, blockage of uh, locotrients uh, with Montelocast and Xylotan is very helpful. From the non-clonal muscle activation patients, uh, we have here that Ha, one third have complete responses with this type of medication. One third had uh, major responses and one third had partial responses. So those patients who really have muscle activation syndromes will respond to some of that medication. In terms of the sodium chromoline in mastocytosis and muscle activation syndrome, this is what uh, Dr. Austin had published uh, even before I came to the lab. And they looked at symptoms in the skin, in the uh, central nervous system, in the gastrointestinal tract. And they see that this is like uh, they put the patient on medication and they stop the medication. So the placebo and the disodium chromoglycate, DSG, uh, SG. And you see that when the patient is on the medication, there's absolutely no symptoms. So there's a tremendous impact on the skin, on the uh, what we call the brain fog and the gastrointestinal symptoms of those patients when they are on sodium chromoline. Why well, I wanted to draw your attention to those symptoms. Patients who have elevated methylhistamine, patients who have elevated tryptases, patients who have elevated mast cell mediators are prone to osteoporosis. Uh, and this is really uh, something that will burden your patients. The young woman that we saw who had anaphylaxis when she was delivering a baby, uh, she had had three vertebral fractures. Uh, she was placed on H1, H2 blockage. She was placed on sodium chromoline. She has not had any more of those episodes and her bones have actually improved. So osteopenia and osteoporosis are tremendous complications of those muscle activation syndromes. The triggers for the patients who have muscle activation syndrome are listed here, and there may be more. Uh, alcohol is one of the main ones. So uh, if Dr. Austin asked me one day, so if you had only one question to ask when a patient came to the clinic and to know if the patient has mastocytosis, what would that question be? And I learned, I didn't know at the time, that if I asked the patient, do you flush with alcohol, the chances of having systemic mastocytosis were very high, given other symptoms. But flushing with alcohol, it's very important. And other things, uh, hemianoptera, as you can see, be one of the key points of those patients. Any of your patients who had hemianoptera venom anaphylaxis and has had hypotension is a candidate for mastocytosis. Uh, other things, changes in temperature, pressure, exercise can be depending on, on the patients and surgery and vaccinations, particularly in children who are going to uh, be exposed to uh, uh, surgery and pressure and, and vaccines uh, are key things and we have a way to protect those patients. So. Uh, recapping antihistamines, disodium chromoglycate, epinephrine, those patients carry two EpiPens, and there is a new uh, formulation uh, of the epinephrine injectable that's called OVQ, and I don't do any uh, uh, consulting for the company uh, as a matter of disclosure, but the new epinephrine talks to the patient. And so uh, for, uh, I didn't bring any, but the, the, it's called OVQ. And the patients are actually very soothed by this product. And I am a big proponent of at the time where patients are in a really stressful situation, this is something that tremendously helps. And instead of a big, long EpiPen, we have a very small, uh, like a half a cell phone that they can put in their pockets. I have a lot of mastocytosis patients who are young teenagers, uh, and uh, they really 
really don't want to carry their EpiPens. They say it's bulky, it doesn't fit in their pants. And But when we have uh, this new uh, product that's called the OVQ that they put in the backpack, uh, they can put in their pants, they can put in any, in any place and it's really easy to carry. So uh, to finish, um, uh, mastocytosis treatment. So when you have a patient who has mastocytosis, there is a, a blockage of mast cell uh, mediators that I was saying here, you inhibit the mediator's action. But there are patients that we might want to kill some mast cells. And this is the list of things that we have used in the past. Interferon really helps with bone fractures and helps uh, increase the bone density. Uh, with hydria, we have seen the patient with recurrent mass, uh, anaphylaxis that have been helped and uh, cladribine for really aggressive. Uh, there is bone marrow transplantation for those, some of those patients, but uh, it's not really something that we advocate yet. We don't have enough uh, data to support that. Tyrosine kinase inhibitor is really the next kid on the block. So even for patients with monoclonal muscle activation syndrome, even for patients with uh, mastocytosis that is indolent, what we call indolent mastocytosis, uh, new things like midostorin might be mainstream in the next few years. And the FDA is looking at those because that will prevent the mast cell activation and also will prevent the mast cell growth. So the uh, clonal expansion will be stopped. So I think that I will stop here. We have a mastocytosis center. We are well, We do a couple of things. First, we answer your questions. If you have a difficult case, Dr. Aiken and myself um, are available for you. Dr. Aiken is the director. I'm the associate director. And this is the list of the people who have who are at the mastocytosis center. Uh, we uh, are able to read, second read, of any biopsies that you feel uh, may contain uh, uh, mast cells that are abnormal. And we actually uh, see your patients if you feel that the they need a, um, a visit to our center. Uh, most of the time, we just give uh, recommendations and advice to uh, all the uh, doctors who send us, uh, have a difficult case, and we go through uh, what the algorithms are to diagnose a muscle activation uh, disorder. So without further ado, I would say that thank you uh, for listening, and I hope that I instill a little bit of uh, curiosity about uh, uh, having more triptase levels and possibly more uh, mutation analysis in your patients with uh, anaphylaxis. Thank you very much. Yes. I have just two questions. The first one is you mentioned hiving, but you didn't feature very prominently through the whole discussion. Is hiving not a very common symptom of mastocytosis? And then the second question would be is there a mechanism for the osteoporosis? Uh, great, thank you so much. Um, hives, uh, really, as I mentioned in, in that uh, slide, um, having hives is a protective factor, so uh, uh, most of the patients don't really hive too much. Now, uh, hives is different than having their urticaria pigmentosa. The ones who have the urticaria pigmentosa, they actually flared up. So if they go out or they exercise, they may flare up their lesions of urticaria pigmentosa. But hives, per se, are not a prominent feature of systemic mastocytosis. Osteoporosis, yes, it's due to uh, the association with interleukin-6 is associated to that. Uh, it has a prominent osteoblastic and, uh, um, effect on the osteoclast, and so that has been associated with the loss of bone density. So many mast cell mediators are. And histamine, for example, there's a very nice study that patients, uh, male patients with elevated histamines in their urine are prone to osteoporosis at early age. So the release of histamine is also has an impact on osteoclast. Yes? I have a follow-up on that question about the <clears throat> uh, mechanism of action of the osteoporosis. Can you see
see the mast cells in the Belmarie appropriate exchange for the spindle cell type? So, so the mast cells can act on the bones uh, by two mechanisms. One is the invasion of the bone. Yeah. And the invasion of the bone of the long bones, we can actually see the mast cells there and we can see the spindle shapes there. But the other action, as I was mentioning, is through the mediators. And histamine actually has a direct impact on osteoclasts and osteoblasts by inhibiting their functions. And uh, interleukin-6, which is also released by mast cells, has a direct effect on the osteoclasts and osteoblasts. So there is those two factors. They can be the invasion and then the indirect uh, mediators. Okay. I have another question. Yes. That has to do with uh, the relationship of the mast cell diseases with the mechanical uh, urticarians, like pressure urticarians. Is there anything new with regard to uh, treatment for that or the mechanism of action? Right, so the mechanical arctic areas uh, like pressure uh, and, and also um, associated angioedema because those were what really uh, matters is that there's not only arctic area but there's an associated angioedema um, are difficult to treat. Uh, the antihistamines might not work and the latest data that we have is omalizumab. So omalizumab tremendously helps with uh, those arctic areas and we have several patients at the Brigham on uh, Zolaire. It's called Zolaire and it has a tremendous good impact on them. It's an expensive uh, uh, medication, but uh, if proven that there is an association between early carrier and angioedema, those patients qualify, and one injection a month of uh, 300 milligrams of omalizumab is uh, almost curative, so it tremendously cures those patients. Yes? So, um, we have an inhibitor of IL-6 in Yes. Great question. Uh, we are actually not uh, being systematically measuring the mediators in patients with mastocytosis in terms of the IL-6, uh, but there is a couple of uh, papers by Dr. Metcalf at the NIH that truly the uh, bone disease in those patients is associated to an elevation of IL-6. So uh, this is an area that we actually will actively be looking in the future to actually block the action of IL-6. The other thing is because of the histamine, there's a combined action of the histamine in the bone and the IL-6. So it, it may be that it's like a 50-50 or not the major, but it's a great possibility. Thank you. <coughs> yes? Do you, do you see this disease overlapping with other disorders? Like do you see like eosinophilia? disorders also associated with mast cell disorders? So there's a couple of things in hyperosinophilic syndromes. Uh, there is an increase in tryptase, and the tryptase might come from the mast cells, might come from cells that are uh, in between eosinophils and mast cells. So we have seen uh, the uh, elevated in tryptase, but we don't see the symptoms. So you might actually see, and it's very well described in the literature, that it can it can be associated with elevated tryptases, hyperosinophilic syndromes, idiopathic hyperosinophilic syndromes, and uh, blocking the mast cells don't ha doesn't help in those diseases. On the other hand, there is a disease that I didn't talk too much about: the indolent systemic mastocytosis associated with hyperosinophilia. So there is because the mast cells, some of the patients release IL-5 and IL-3, uh, so those are factors that increase the rate of eosinophils. And we can find the eosinophils increase in the peripheral blood and in the tissues. And when we treat the mast cell disorder, that eosinophilia disappears and gets better. So it goes both ways.
And for example, in uh, uh, eosinophilic gastroenteritis, there is a, a, some increase in the mast cells. The recent data suppose there is an increase in the local mast cells, and 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 the role of the mast cells is being investigated in those diseases, in uh, hyper eosinophilic uh, disorders. Great.